Toy Story 3. It's the third installment in the series, which is, of course, why they called it Toy Story 3. But by this time, we know all of the characters. We know all of the toys. We know Buzz Lightyear. We know Woody. We know the Potato Heads. We know Rex, the, uh, the dinosaur. We know the Slinky Dog. We know Jesse. I mean, we know and we love all of these characters. And they get in some trouble in Toy Story 3. There's a very mean teddy bear. And towards the end of the movie, they find themselves with a bunch of junk and they're on this conveyor belt that's moving down this passage and they can't tell where it is that they're going. And all of a sudden, Rex looks down and says, Woody, look, it's daylight. We're going to be okay. And Woody takes a look down there and says, I don't think that's daylight. And what they realize all of a sudden is it's not daylight, it's an incinerator and they're on a conveyor belt that's gonna dump them into this incinerator and they're all gonna die. And so they start scrambling, they try to get out, they do everything they possibly can and it doesn't work. The conveyor belt just keeps moving along. They keep trying to fight it and they can't. And they get dumped from the conveyor belt onto the lip of the incinerator and they're sliding down into the fiery furnace. And Jesse looks at Buzz and says, what will we do? And he looks at her and he reaches out and he takes her hand. And then they all look around and each one of the toys takes one of the other's hands. And so they're all holding hands as they slide down towards the incinerator. And they're all giving each other looks like and I'm in the movie theater when I first saw this in like 2010. I'm in the movie theater going, <laughs> and I look around and every other guy in the place is an absolute mess because this is like the ultimate buddy moment. Here's all these toys that we have come to love and they love each other and they realize they're gonna die. But if they're gonna die, they're gonna do it with their friends. It's the ultimate buddy moment. When the chips are down, we will be there for each other. Now, contrast that with this story out of Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. Toy Story 3, we're here for each other. Jesus at Gethsemane, feeling pretty alone. 
So at this point, I'm thinking I'd rather hang out with Mr. Potato Head than the disciples. But let's take a deeper dive into what's going on, because this whole story is about the plan and the purpose of God. This is the, if you're not familiar with the story, this is the last night of Jesus's life. He's on the threshold of doing what he came to do, of doing what God had planned from the very beginning, way back in Genesis, to break the power of evil and sin and death, and to take people who were far away from God and bring them close as family. Jesus has found his mission and his purpose in the plan of God, and now he is right about to execute it, and it ain't easy. And we are super mistaken if we think following Jesus is synonymous with having a problem-free life. We still get the problems, but we also get the solutions, and we get God's presence, and that is sort of the point of this story. The plan and the purpose of God has brought Jesus to this point in the garden, knowing what lies ahead overnight and the next day. It's all about to be over. And knowing this, it had to be agony for him. And he wanted his friends to be with him. He's human after all. It's what we confess. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He's about to die. He's about to be abandoned. He's about to have the crushing weight of the sin of the world dumped on him. And he doesn't want to be alone. He wants to be with his friends. So Jesus invites his friends to be with him. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So Jesus brings the group, probably 11 of them. There's one notable absence. And he's already told them at dinner, the Last Supper, what's about to happen and how upset he is. So he takes the 11, and then he takes his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and they go just a little bit further away. And when he's got just the three of them, Jesus gets pretty vulnerable with them. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, The Message, put it this way. Jesus says, this sorrow is crushing my life out. Stay here and keep vigil with me. So to recap, your best friend, someone you've shared life with 24-7 for the past three years, is in absolute mental anguish and pain. He's facing crucifixion and death, and he knows it, and you know it, and he asks you to just be with him. It's like when Buzz reaches out to Jesse, will you just be with me in this? What do they do? Verse 39, Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, let's assume that this is the Note version of the prayer and that it actually went on a little bit longer than that because if it didn't, the disciples are really pretty pathetic. Verse 40, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can you imagine? Jesus is saying, I'm in so much pain here, and you're taking a nap? Eugene Peterson in the message again says, Can't you stick it out with me for a single hour? Stay alert, be in prayer, so you don't wander into temptation without even knowing you're in danger. There's a part of you that is eager, ready for anything in God. 
But there's another part that's as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. Oh my word, that might be the best line in Eugene Peterson's entire translation of the Bible. There's a part of you that is eager, ready for anything in God. But there's another part that's as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. So I'll just preach to myself here for a minute. That is so true of me. I love God with my whole heart. I've dedicated my whole life to following him and serving him. If the chips are down, I will stand with Jesus. But the chips are hardly ever down. It's usually just the day in and day out reality of life. And I get lulled into a sense of, oh, non-urgency. And other things capture my attention. And then I realize that my focus is off on something else and I've lost my edge. And my attention is no longer captivated by the amazing wonder that through Jesus I am loved and that I have value and that I matter and that my life has meaning and purpose and I'm just kind of mindlessly occupied doing something else. Okay, enough true confessions. I'll let you think about whether or not you can see yourself in those lines. There's a part of you that is eager, ready for anything in God, but there's another part that's as lazy as an old dog sleeping by the fire. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. I think verse 43 and verse 44 are incredibly sad. For the second time, Jesus is in agonizing prayer and he takes a break to come back to hang out with his friends, to receive a little bit of support, to just be with someone else. And they're asleep again. And this time, he doesn't even bother waking them up. They failed him utterly as friends, as ministry partners, as disciples, and he's resigned to being alone on the night before he dies. So sad. Verse 45, then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. How are you sleeping through all this? Don't you hear the soldiers approaching? You've abandoned me already, but now we get to the part where you really do abandon me. It's so sad because it didn't need to be that way. The disciples are completely oblivious to what's going on all around them. Everything in the past three years is leading up to this point, and they missed it all because they're too tired to pay attention. And I'm sorry, that's a lousy excuse. I get tired too, but I've received plenty of phone calls at two o'clock in the morning and I'm awake immediately. They fell asleep because they weren't engaged. They fell asleep because they didn't pay close enough attention to notice what was actually going on. Jesus is suffering. The disciples are blissfully, blissfully oblivious, comfortably sleeping as if nothing important was going on. So why are we looking at this passage? What's the context for us? The context is that we are in a brand new world. Everything has changed. All of the assumptions, all the way that we used to do things, 
Everything is different right now. We are in such a state of flux and nobody knows what everything is going to look like. And if we are going to use this time to be effective for Jesus and not just spin our wheels or not just try and reclaim the past which is gone, if we're going to be engaged with the plan and the purpose of God, we need to think about what we need to be doing. And right now, one of the greatest needs that I have been able to identify is that people need presence of other people. Jesus, who was God, wanted people to be present with him. It's a human condition. God built that into us. It's also how God is changing the world. He enters into our lives to be present with us. Last week in the sheep and the goats, every time someone was needy, it was Jesus who was there. Jesus asked his friends to be present with him in his need, and now Jesus asks us, his friends, to be present with others in their need. One of the greatest needs right now is human connection. I am seeing over and over, and in all of the literature that I am reading, people are noticing that there is this heavy sense of grief that so many people are carrying around with them. There is the pain of all of the losses that we suffered. There is the weight of 15 months of loneliness. There were um, you know, people who were out of work. There were financial stresses. There were relational stresses. There is the stress about what does the future hold of everything being shaken. And it is manifesting itself in a deep sense of grief in a deep sense of loneliness, in destructive behaviors, in destructive actions. And right now, this greatest need that people have for somebody to be with them, we can make an enormous difference in people's life if we'll see it. Or we can just be blissfully ignorant and go on sleeping. All of this right now, all of the pain that people are living in, all of the disorientation, all of the chaos, that's our mission field. All of that is an opportunity to share the hope that we have in Jesus, if we'll see it, if we'll engage with it, if we will understand it as a priority. Jesus finds his mission and his purpose from God. That's the driving force in his life. Three times in this passage, Jesus prays, I don't really want to do this, but I'll do whatever you call me to do. And he does. Where, at the same time, are the disciples finding their mission and purpose? Taking care of themselves? Desire to sleep? self-preservation. They don't want to get in too deep because it might cost them something. They don't want to get in trouble with the authorities. They don't want to be fully committed to something because it might get out of control. Any of those things seem to be where they're finding their mission and purpose. Where are we finding our mission and purpose? In the plan and purpose of God or in the things like the disciples were, taking care of ourselves, self-preservation, not getting in too much trouble or being overcommitted. Last week I mentioned uh, four things that, are, that could be important to us. Uh, what's most important in our society? What's most important in your friend group? What's most important to Jesus? What's most important to you? Those are potentially four different things with four different missions and four different purposes. Which one will be most important to us? I heard a great line this last week. 
It was that Herod was a tyrant, but Jesus wasn't a part of the political group that was trying to overthrow him. Jesus was instead forming a subversive group that was changing people's hearts and changing the world by loving people and loving God. I think many of us are involved politically, and we should be. I, I encourage you to do that. But my question would be, where are we getting our, pur our purpose and our mission from? From our political beliefs or from Jesus? Because they may be two very different things. Jesus isn't just asking them to be present with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's asking them to engage in the mission and the purpose of God with him. Watch, pray, be present. And that's what he calls us to do too. So there's a couple of potential challenges, things that could make that hard. Um, the first is, are we adequately engaged and connected with Jesus? Do we know him well enough to know what the purpose that he has is for our life? This story comes after Jesus and his friends have spent, have spent three years together. They know each other. This can be a challenge for us because we can't be with Jesus 24-7 in the same way that they were. And we have so many other pressures, so many other options of things that are shouting at us, that want our attention. And so it's really important that we find a way to get to know Jesus better so that we can know what his plan and purpose is for us. So pray, absolutely. And if you need some resources about how to pray, let me know. Read your Bible. Absolutely. If you need to know how to do that or how to get set up for success, let me know. I'd be happy to help you. Join a small group. That is a great idea. It's people, it's presence, it's help, it's doing things together. And if you're only going to choose one thing, I would pick a mentoring relationship for you. Because I have seen the greatest discipleship success in people that are meeting one-on-one -on -one with someone who's just a little bit further along than they are. It can be a completely customized process. If you pick something, pick this one. But pick any of them. Do something to help you know Jesus and engage with Jesus and his mission and purpose better so that you can know what yours is. Sometimes I think we get a little bit intimidated because we see the need, we see people who need presence, we see some of the needs from last week, and we think, it, it's just me. You know, I'm not that big of a deal. Well, yeah, that, that is true. You're not that big of a deal. But it's amazing how you can be used. The power isn't so much that you are present, although that certainly is powerful. The power is that you carry the presence of God with you where you go. I remember at the very first church that I was ever a senior pastor in, and it was, it was a big church, and it was a very formal-looking cathedral kind of church. I mean, it had stained glass windows. It had a huge pipe organ. It looked like church. And I had this very, very serious wood-paneled office. I had my own private bathroom, best perk ever. There was no way of mistaking that this was a big deal. And I kept waiting for like the first two years. I kept waiting for the real pastor to come in and go, who are you and why are your feet on my desk? And I had to realize that it wasn't me, it was the position that I had that was important. I mean, I knew my shortcomings, I knew my failings, but I was occupying a position and that was what was important. And it's the same as when we go into other people's lives and we help other people. It's not just you, it's the God that you bring with you. That's what's important. 
It can be awkward. Most of us don't like awkward social situations, so you think, oh my gosh, somebody's in grief, somebody's in pain. What do you say? Sometimes you say nothing. There's this wonderful tradition that comes out of Judaism. It's called sitting Shiva. Shiva is the, the word for seven days. And basically, after a person suffers like a death in the family or something like that, the community just comes and sits. And it's just there. And you're not expected to say anything. You're not expected to do anything. I'm sure they're happy for bringing a casserole. But it's just, you're there. So they're not alone. It's a powerful presence. But it's just showing up, not so much what you say. Some of the, the things that we say get us in trouble. If you want a list of things to say and not say, contact me. I could write a book on it. But what it is, is it's the regular texting. It's the regular phone call. It's the regular contact that reminds people that they haven't been forgotten. An initial contact is really easy, and most people are really good in an acute situation. But it's who's contacting, who's being present a week, or a month later when somebody is still feeling alone or still feeling like they're in grief. It's just the regularity of the contact, not what you say. Maybe you're thinking, I've got too much going on in my own life. Well, that might get back to some of the questions that we've talked about of priorities. Are your priorities in the right order so that you can be involved in ministry to other people? And it could be that you are just going through a season of real deep pain in your life, and that is valid and that is real, and hopefully it will just be for a season. But even so, I find that even when we are going through times of pain, that if we get out of our own circumstances, if we get out of our own head, that serving and caring for and being with other people brings perspective. And it also brings the presence and the peace of God to us because it's squarely within God's will for us. We bring the peace and presence of God to others and in the midst we find that for ourselves. And maybe like last week, it just seems too hard. We look at all of the need and we think, but you know what? Jesus isn't asking you to save the world. He already did that. Mostly he's just asking you, will you be present with the people in pain who are in front of you? Will you be more like the toys in the toy story and less like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? So let me ask you three questions. This week, to whom or to what will you look for the mission and purpose of your life? Number two, what is the thing most likely to derail you from following God's purpose for your life? And number three, what thing can you either start or intensify this week that will help you to grow closer to Jesus?